with uh, the class here, what are, what's the main topic or subject in chapters 9, 10, and 11? Do you guys remember what we've been talking about for a while here? Who's, who is Paul talking about is, is my question. Jerry, why don't you give us the answer? Yeah, there you go. Talking about Israel. And obviously Paul's addressing the church in Rome, right? So again, going back to our herme- hermeneutics class, we've got to look at the context. So our beloved apostle Paul's writing to the church in Rome um, that as far as we know, mostly Gentiles. He's explaining God's work and specifically through Israel right now. There's a ton of doctrine in this letter. And again, it's, uh, it wasn't written with chapter and verse. It's just one long letter to this church. Um, they were probably reading it all at once together, and everyone probably stood as they read it, right? So, um, but surely they went back and studied the text more and more and more to learn from it. So, as um, we're getting back into chapter 11, we need to remember the context that that church was in. They're in Rome, right? And who was in charge of Rome? Who? What'd you say? The Pope? (laughs) they had, Rome had a, a king, right? Caesar was king. And at that point, were the Jews, the, um, the uh, national Israel, were they kind to Christians or hostile towards Christians? At that time in Rome. They weren't very nice, right? Yeah, they eventually started pushing them out. Um, yeah, and so Paul's obviously writing this letter to the church that he hasn't been to, he hasn't visited yet. So let's jump in, let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll get going right away. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and gratefulness and thankfulness again for your son and everything that you've given to us as your people, your word, your promise, and your redemption. Your justification just uh, is beyond our complete conception, Lord. We can't understand it fully, but we trust it and we know what your word says. And as we learn through your word this morning, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds and open our mouths for discussion in this class where we're allowed to be with each other who are brothers and sisters in Christ and learn together and uh, build each other up and continue gaining from your word so we can take this out to the rest of the world and share with those people that we come in contact with daily. We lift up our families and our friends that are sick. We lift up those um, who are grieving. Our hearts go out to the families of the Whitworths. We love them, and we're thankful for all that they've done for us, Lord. We just praise you, praise you for your ministry through them, through us, through each one here and for what we can continue doing in the Word. I pray in Jesus' name. Okay. So we just finished chapter 10. And let me back up a little bit, and I'll read this through in context. Um, 
Let's go to, I'm going to back up to 18, and Paul's speaking here. But I say, surely have, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who I did, who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Chapter 11, verse 1. Paul speaking here. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Okay, we're stopping there today. We'll pick up uh, in verse 7, starting next week. But as we're looking through these verses, 1 through 6, first question Paul brings up in regards to Israel's rejection to God, uh, to Jesus Christ. Um, again, he's speaking to church in Rome. Um, we're assuming most of them are not uh, Jewish, they're Gentiles. Um, but they're learning as they are uh, reading through this letter, and they should have some sort of foundation that Paul's... Um, building off of two. But it says, God has not rejected his people, has he? So this word rejected, uh, in your notes there, I have literally means shoved off or cast away. And it isn't to be confused with, uh, does, it doesn't mean that he hasn't received them, um, but rather they are his, and he's not completely shoving them off. He's not casting them away from himself. Uh, these are people he already had chosen and had already um, used in his plan of redemption. So that's Paul's first question, because he's anticipating what the reader is going to be asking themselves in their head. And we've gone through this a couple times already, right, in Romans 9 and 10. And we're seeing it here in 11, um, because as you see Israel's rejection of the gospel, then we're, we're starting to question it ourselves, right? Is God just done with Israel? And his response, obviously, in the strongest sense, may it never be. But how strong is this saying? We've talked about this a couple times here. 
already because it's been um, brought up. But let's look back. Let's look back just so we can verify how strong this may it never be is. Uh, flip to chapter 3 in Romans here and find that saying in chapter 3. Where do you guys see it at? What verse? Verse 4. So what's the context of this? Verse 3, Paul says, um, let's back up verse 2. Start in verse 1. What advantage has the Jew, right? Okay, so we're talking, why is it important to be a Jew? Um, Paul says it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Then here he says, may it never be. And that's a strong, may it never be. That's not very light. Um, I remember when we were going through this, and I think Mark taught on this passage, and it is a absolutely not. Because when we're talking about God and his promises and his character, he's never going to renege on something that he has promised to a people, to his people. Okay, look in chapter 6. Where do you see it in chapter 6? Right, verse 2. Someone want to read verses 1 and 2 for us? Absolutely. And in, in chapter 6, um, just coming off the hills of chapter 5, where we talked about sin came into the world through what? One man. Absolutely. Yeah, one man. And uh, salvation came into the world uh, through one man, um, despite all the transgressions. And we're going back and forth, and he's talking about God's grace. And his righteousness, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then Paul asked that rhetorical question, but it's brought up in our minds as we're reading this. What shall we say then? Continue in sin so that grace may increase because God's grace is so good that it's going to always outdo the amount of sin. And he says, may it never be. How can we still live in it? We've been saved from it, right? And there's another one in six. I didn't write it down. I think there's another one in six. You see another, may it never be in six? Fifteen. There you go, at the end of verse 15. Oh yeah, back up to verse 14. You want to read 14 and 15 for us there, Jerry? For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Again, very, very strong emphasis there. And then verse 16, he picks up. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Again, he's talking about to sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. So that was something you're supposed to know. And then chapter 7, there's another may it never be in chapter 7. Where do you see that one at? 
verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? Heaven forbid, absolutely not. It cannot be, because it is God's law. I would not have come to no sin except through the law. Okay, great, we're seeing it there. And then chapter 9, where we went over it more recently. Where do you see it in chapter 9? Verse 13? 13, 13. Which one? Oh, 14. There we go. Okay, right. And here he's talking and giving the explanation of God choosing some and not others, right? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Again, God forbid. Heaven forbid, may it never be. And he goes on to explain that God says he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. So we understand the sense of how strong this is. Again, and we've seen it throughout this whole letter, may it never be. Paul Paul is using this um, to answer those questions that pop up in our heads as we're reading through it. And um, we might have some questions about this, and right here the question might be, is God done with Israel? And so he says, may it never be. Let's flip back real quick to Jeremiah 31. Let's look at this passage and understand where Paul's coming from. Someone want to read that out loud for us, 31 through 37? Great. Thank Pay attention to this next part. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. 
Thank you. Okay, we see that term cast off here, right? And as we're reading in chapter 11, verse 1, the word rejected is the same um, meaning as we're getting as this cast off here. So looking in Jeremiah, is it possible that God would cast off the nation of Israel forever? Not if we believe God's word. It's right here and he's making this promise. We don't know when that'll come into complete fulfillment, but he's saying it will, right? So we see that here. Again, we see why Paul is saying, may it never be. Because he has uh, studied the scriptures very thoroughly. He understands what God's promises are to his people. And then Paul gives three reasons uh, in this passage directly why God is not rejecting them, why he's not casting them off or shoving them away. And what's the first thing he says? I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so why are these three reasons significant? We're back in 11. We're in verse 1. Still, where Paul says, I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So why are these reasons he's giving significant that God would not cast off his people? He cast off Paul, right? And so he's an Israelite. So there's kind of direct correlation right there, right? And what's the importance of being an Israelite? Let's just dig into some of our, our history here. Right? Okay, the Abrahamic covenant. Why not? Why can't the Abrahamic covenant, covenant be broken? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no, no thing that man could do to break it. Right. Do you uh, know where to look for that covenant? If you wanted to look back and, and find that? Yes, good job, Joseph. Good job. Yes, Genesis 12. You can find it um, first spelled out in verses 1 through 3. And uh, we get more detail in chapter 13, verses 15. Um, even more detail in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. So those are the verses you can go back and see exactly what God has uh, made a covenant with Abraham about and how God alone made that covenant, right? He didn't involve Abraham to say, hey, you hold up your side and I'll hold up my side. That wasn't this covenant. There was covenants like that, right? But that was not the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Moses discusses it in further detail in his uh, last letters to the people um, before they go into the land that God's given them in Deuteronomy. Uh, we went through that several years ago now at this point. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, 1 through 10, you can find that if you want to look that up as well. 
Uh, Chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. they won't have to say know the Lord which is what we're having to do right now to everyone on the face of this earth including every Jew who is unbelieving right so we're not there yet what other covenants um, were unconditional there was the Davidic covenant and you can also find that in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verses 8 through 16 or again, God's making a covenant through David there. What was the covenant that was conditional? There you go. Yeah. Mosaic covenant, right? As God led his people out of Egypt and um, spoke to them. Yeah, that was, hey. I will do this. If you do that, you'll be blessed. If you obey, you'll be cursed. If you don't, and um, that's the one that really stuck in their head more than anything, isn't it? <laughs> they remembered that one because they're like, hey, I can do something with this. We don't have to trust God like we do for the Abrahamic covenant, which wasn't a good thing. It was at first, but, you know, uh, as humans are, we take things and want to be in control of them. So then, yeah, as Jeremy mentioned, the new covenant is what it is called in Jeremiah. Again, that was 31, verses 31 through 37. You can also see that in Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38. And that is a great passage to read as well. And I, I definitely recommend that you go back and read through that. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 38. Both these Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel passages are really, really helpful if you get in the mindset of uh, what Paul is asking here. Has God rejected his people, the, is the, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, um, the Jewish people, in a full sense, if you start... Um, want, wondering in your mind and going down that road you need to go back and, and read these texts and read what God has said through his prophets to his people okay what's, uh, what's the significance of tribe of Benjamin anything important there Definitely a, uh, a tribe that was recognized and part of the 12, and it was just as important, but um, very small. What happened? Very close to annihilation. Why is that? <laughs> Do you know the story? Why don't you share a little bit? 
Because <laughs> the, the other 11 tribes attacked them um, for something that they did to one of the Levites' company. It was very, very horrific. They came back, they regrouped. Uh, anyone of importance that came from the tribe of Benjamin that you know of off the top of your head? Someone that wasn't a great example, but shared the name with Paul. King Saul, yeah, he was, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and I read something just interesting in the blessings that Jacob gave his son. Um, the, the 12 sons that became the 12 tribes, right, in the Benjamin, uh, his blessing was he was a man that would be like a wolf that would gather in the morning and um, basically rejoice at night. So there's this um, compare and contrast of the nature of this uh, tribe that they were the ones that fought and went to war. Uh, they had a very aggressive nature to them. Um, but the, uh, the commentator just discussed the difference in Saul the king and Paul um, who believed in God and his experience through Christ and the, just the, the difference between the two men and where their lives led. That was interesting as well. But yeah, not a huge, huge deal um, in Benjamin itself, but just that it was, yeah, absolutely part of uh, everything that these covenants were given to. Any questions on that, that section right there? We're still in verse 1, second part of it. Any feedback? Good, good, good. Well, good. Great feedback there. All right, we'll keep moving on. So I want to give you my kind of summary of these verses um, just in general since we got just through verse 1. But here I, I'm seeing it as Paul is anticipating the reader's questions, right? So he gives these three strong examples. And we just went through one of the examples so far. But Paul gives three of his strongest examples of how God is not done with Israel, but rather he has kept his plan of salvation through the world uh, through them according to divine election and gracious choice. So as we move into the second reason he gives here, in verse 2, Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
And God has not, again, rejected that word, also meaning shoved off the people of whom he knew before. Before what? What does the word for no mean? We went over this before. Bring up some recollection from you, from those in the class. What does for no mean? As we've discussed it in the text. Yes, yes. Keep going with that. How far back does foreknowing go? Thank you. Yeah, before the foundations of the earth. So where does that lead us to? Um, eternity, right? Eternity past. Let's flip over to Psalm 94. Read verse 14 real quick. Again, God's promises... In his word, his word is divine. It is Psalm 94, verse 14, I believe. Yep. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Interesting word there, right? nor will he forsake his inheritance. And as we're learning through this letter, especially in chapters 8, it was very clear in 9, Paul emphasizes it specifically according to the Jews. His inheritance is, is his people, those whom God has foreknown, foreknown, that he elect, that he predestined, that he's justified, and that we'll be glorified. So God's never going to forsake those whom he's known from eternity past. Were they spirits in eternity past? Right? No? No? Okay. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay. Did, did God look into the future to find out who's going to believe and who's going to obey and select those people that way? Is that how he foreknew them? Dusty says no, good job, Dusty. Okay, that's right. No, that is not God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is according to his plan, according to his grace and his choice not based off any works that anyone's done. He's elected people before the world was made. When he talks about election, his foreknowledge is relational, not based on events. Absolutely. But he knew persons. He didn't know merely actions, but he knew people. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because another thing that we went through and learned about the word foreknowledge was relational. And it's about a deep, intimate relationship with the other person. And it's used in scripture about man knowing his wife. And that doesn't just mean, you know, we met and we knew each other. That meant intimacy, right? God knows the deepest parts of our hearts and he's known us from eternity past and he knew his people then as well. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. 
God says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because God, because the God loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out of a mighty, by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Right? Okay, so Paul's second reason. Here in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Because doing so would also be rejecting what he's given to his people, what he's made these covenant promises with. And he can't reject himself. God cannot deny himself. So we see Paul using this as the second example. Besides the fact that he's a Jew and he is saved, he is in Christ Jesus, he is converted, born again, and also because God will not reject the people whom he foreknew. Then we jump into the second half of verse 2, where Paul says, Or do you not know what the scripture says? Now we heard this language earlier in one of the verses we just went over in chapter 6. Or do you not know? This is something that Paul is expressing as saying, you should know this. Um, that it is important that they know what scripture has said, what God has said divinely in his word. So he says, do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So we see Paul um, uses scripture as a bib biblical example. And Paul's jumping into this text back in 1 Kings 19. Should we flip over there and read that real quick? Just to see how it compares to this text. Flip back to 1 Kings. Chapter 19. Okay, someone want to pick up verse 10 and 14? You want to do those two first? Okay, go for it, Joseph. Um, do you know what was going on in this passage? Uh, why he is saying this to God, the Lord? Good. What do you recall? This was after, I believe, Jacob was sacrificing. 
So who was who was Ahab? So Ahab was the king of Israel. Right, and Jezebel was his wife. Wife, right? And so in this context, in in First Kings, um, Israel had done some some pretty awful stuff, right? Right. And uh, Is, uh, Jezebel, I almost said Isabel, um, she led the people to be worshiping these false idols, and she. Uh, gathered a bunch of prophets that worshiped this idol, right? So you remember reading through that, um, that Elijah contended with them and basically called them, called them to the floor and said, hey, if, you're, if your gods are so great, build this altar. Let's, let's slaughter all these calves. Build this altar and you tell your God to rain down fire on the altar and make this uh, uh, burnt sacrifice to your gods, right? right? And so what happened in the story? They tried, yeah. and... Yeah, all, all day. All day, yeah. And he was kind of just hanging around, watching them, started mocking them, right? Like, he knew how ridiculous this was going to be. These false gods, these idols, weren't going to be able to do anything. Right. Do you recall how many uh, priests and prophets they had? That were trying to do this? It was, a lot. It was hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Hundreds. And then eventually, Elijah did his part, built his altar. He dug a trench around it and filled it with water just to emphasize the point that he knew would happen, right? right. Um, he called down uh, to his God, our God, the God, the one true God. To rain fire down and did it instantly, right? What happened after that? Well, a lot of the these commanded a lot of the false prophets to slaughter. Right. Really, this can be a reading comprehension. That's good. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad he just read it. This is perfect. Right. Yes, he took them and he slaughtered. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these false prophets. This did not make the king and his wife very happy. At that point, um, Elijah was fearful for his life. After what had happened in that display of God's power, and he was the one prophet of God there versus these other people, this giant group of people. He was the only one there. He felt alone. He felt like he may be the last person of God on the face of the earth. So, Paul's quoting this in verse 3 where he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. Because at this point, now he's running from King Ahab, from Jezebel. He's going to hide from them because he just killed hundreds of their priests and prophets. And they are not happy with him. And so he's crying out to God in the context of this story. 
which is really good. I suggest you go back, read it through more thoroughly, back up a couple chapters. It's really, really good. Make sure you understand that. Because Paul says, do you not know what the scripture says? We should know what the scripture says. That's important. Go back and read it. Enjoy it. Believe it. And then Paul goes on after quoting Elijah. But what is the divine response to him? This is God's response to Elijah. Okay, read verse, back to 1 Kings. What does he say in verse 18? There you go. So God's response to his prophet, whom he used to prove his power and that he is God alone, he says, I, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. So here's Elijah thinking he's the only one. 7,000 is a pretty decent sized number. I mean, compared to how many Jews there was, it's probably not that big, right? There's I don't know how many millions at that point. Yeah, so it's a small percentage. Maybe one, one percent, somewhere around there, two percent. So it's small in that, that sense, but 7,000 men. It's much more than this one Elijah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's the point Paul is making here. I, and back in, in Romans 11, verse 4, God says, as he's quoting, I have kept for myself... 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal. However you want to say the, his name there. I never quite figured that out there, Jeremy. <laughs> okay, so we understand who Elijah is. We understand why Paul is saying this. Um, or do you not know? Uh, we can see why Elijah is pleading to God in this instant because he feels scared and alone and by himself. That could take some application in our own hearts today, by the way, right? And then God's divine response here to Elijah is that he has kept for himself. He has done it. Because God chose that. Okay, let's keep going on into verse uh, 5. In the same way then, Okay, so Paul's using then to compare to now. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So he's using that past scripture and the event, that desperation from his prophet who did what he was supposed to do and yet was still fearful for his life to show that, hey, I have for myself set apart these men for my purposes. So is Paul saying that's the same thing that's going on now? We see it at the present time. A remnant. So what is a remnant? What's this word mean? What's your thoughts on that? What is a remnant? Portion. Portion. Leftover. Leftover. Good. What's remaining? Very good, yep. Good, we're getting good details on this word. And you're right. All those were right. It is those things. What is left? A small portion. Um, this is 
The only time this word is used in the, in the Greek, it's rendered very similarly just back in um, chapter 9 that we read previously um, with a, a little bit of a prefix on it. But yeah, Paul's using this to explain. Now, the, that's the Greek word. Um, and the meaning of a small portion saved, a small remnant of people, we see it all throughout Scripture. We see that um, in Isaiah, as he talks uh, about a small portion of Israel that's left for himself. Specifically, you can look up chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, if you want to see Isaiah saying that himself. Um, we also know that Noah and his family were how many people? Eight. Eight. A few, according to Peter. Right. Now that is a small, small, small remnant, right? I mean, that's much smaller than 7,000. That's eight people out of everyone on the earth. Um, they weren't called the remnant, but we can see that they were, right? Lot and his daughters out of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were the only three saved. His wife was going to be saved, but she couldn't let go of that life, right? Then we see the 7,000 men in 1 Kings 19. And then uh, Romans, like I mentioned, it's uh, verse 27 and 28 in chapter 9, where he says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath have, had left us a prosperity, posterity, sorry, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Okay? So we got an understanding of what remnant is, right? Any questions on that? Any confusion? Okay, good. I got a question. Yeah. So we've talked before about how there's uh, disagreement in this passage or in these chapters about who Israel is. So if we had an understanding of Israel being the church here, would that fit what Paul's saying here? Would they have an understanding of the church in this period as being a remnant comparable to Elijah in his day? The, so... Is so in, in Rome, where there are like very few Christians in this time period, where there are not a lot of Christians, and they would feel alone and yeah. left apart. Oh, yeah. yeah. In Rome? The church in Rome, who they're talking to? Who Paul's writing to? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. You think they feel like one out of 7,000? Yeah. Or completely left apart? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they do. Rome was a huge, huge city, right? Yeah, but Christianity was also booming at that time, right? read through Acts and you can see how it went from addition mm -hmm. to multiplication and the church was just growing. And to my understanding, I think that'd be kind of a difficult interpretation to take and then still think, okay, well, those who are Christians are being called a remnant. Whereas if you're talking about Israel, um, national Israel, national. in my mind, that makes a, a lot more sense to say, okay, well, there's not a, a whole lot of Jews who are in Christ because mm -hmm. um, they're definitely more sparse and Christians in general at that time. Although even in, in Acts, I mean, all the 
Christians were Jews from the beginning, right? At the beginning, we see um, the conversion of several thousand um, that were Jews. But at that point, someone had taken the word to Rome, and it wasn't Paul. And uh, they started the church there among the Gentiles, and there was probably some Jews sprinkled in. Yeah, but by and large, it was uh, a faith that was embraced by the Gentiles. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Gentiles were embracing it because this hasn't been available to them uh, until the gospel came. And Christ did what he did, and the Jews are just systematically rejecting it, and uh, the Gentiles are not. Yep, yep, because Paul's using himself, right, as being an Israel and being believing. Um, but yeah, they're, they're probably not seeing a whole lot of that, especially in Rome at this point. So what? I'm getting out of that. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> um, I'm saying I, I see it pretty clearly here is um, this as the remnant being spoken of as Israel, national Israel. If you were to make that application to Christianity as a whole, I don't think it would have the same punch as it does talking about the, the Jewish people. Okay. And like Paul, I mean, later in the letter, there's some evidence that Paul goes on to talk about believers in lots of other areas when he says that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum. <laughs> Well, and as he says, uh, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And then he expands on that in verse 6 where it says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, right? So gracious choice, what does that mean? What does gracious choice mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a chosen favor. Something that's not deserved by divine election of those he foreknew, right? Before eternity passed. So it's part of God's eternal plan of redemption. And grace has to be grace without works being involved ever. Because then it is not favor. It is not grace. It is not a gift. If any of it's earned, it's what you've earned. But since all of humanity is just earning death, the wages of sin is death, that's what we're earning. We're not earning God's grace. He gives it freely to those whom he foreknew. Romans 4, verse 4 here. Let me flip back put it on your page, but I didn't put the notes down on why I put it on there. So, uh, oh yeah, 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 okay, makes perfect sense. 
Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. We always got to remember that. And need to be able to explain that as we're having conversations with folks that want to contend. Okay, so we see through this passage, um, we went over the context. Uh, my own interpretation, uh, part of our hermeneutic study is interpreting the text, giving it a principle and application. So uh, God has not shoved away Israel, but has always kept for himself a remnant to preserve his covenants, regardless of Israel's rejection and corruption. God's plan is not thwarted or changed. He keeps the promises for his purpose according to his divine election. Not man's works, but God's gracious choice. So what I think, to me, this principle, this overarching principle is God keeps his word eternally. If we see it promised back here, it doesn't change when the gospel is given here on this side of the text. So our own application, our own application that I wrote, um, and you guys can apply this uh, to yourselves now, for us as we're learning and reading through this, but we must trust every word of God. And again, this goes back to our hermeneutics class, but in its historical, literal, grammatical context, um, to every content and promise made in its significance, to allow scripture to be our guide in its in its true sense. So today, today we must know that God has not and will not cast away all of Israel, but rather saves for himself the remnant for future purposes predetermined. He predetermined this in eternity past. We can rejoice in the knowledge that God is faithful to the fullest extent of his word. As we get more through chapter 11, um, all of that becomes more and more clear because Paul is writing this for a very specific purpose. So we'll continue to see that as we get further into this chapter. And it's exciting. And, he, and later in the chapter, he does quote Jeremiah 31, showing that that, you know, that's very key. Yeah. Promises don't change in the span of those blank pages between Old Testament and New Testament. And we should be very excited about that. We feel very confident. In our Lord and His Word. All right, let's wrap up in prayer and we'll enjoy some fellowship. Master Jesus, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace. Help us to see all that you've given us and count our blessings and be joyful in this time that we have together and this life that we have with one another. And we know in our heart that your word is full of truth and that we can trust and believe in you fully. Look forward to the rest of this service and our fellowship and our time together as we are your church. May we love one another the way you love us, your bride. And in Christ I pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone.